Okay, this is, uh, I'm sure you've been keeping track, and you know this is the eighth and final in this lesson in the book of Joshua, and we're going to be very ambitious today and try to cover like the last ten chapters. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so we uh, are in Joshua chapter 13, if you have your Bible or electronic device. And uh, any, we'll probably start another series, I, I assume we will, I plan to, in the New Testament in uh, September. And so we'll be sending you an email on the exact date and everything on, on when that will be. So uh, you can anticipate it for the entire summer as we go along. <laughs> and in today's lesson, uh, you'll see that the land, now that Israel has conquered, Joshua has conquered the land of Canaan and is going to make it now the land of Israel. The job left to do is to divide up the land. And uh, in Numbers um, chapter 26, Numbers chapter 26, Moses had directed them to do that by lot. So randomly they're going to choose which land or which part of Israel they're going to live in by tribe. Each tribe gets its own allotment, and they're going to do that by casting lots. And so it's a a random selection, just like the random selection of this movie clip that you're about to see. Okay. As you know, they have defeated... Israel has defeated all the Canaanite armies that came against them. So the battles were over. There's no more resistance to Israeli occupation. And at the end of last week, we saw, thus the land had rest from war. Unfortunately, if you look at verse 1 of today's lesson, chapter 13, verse 1, seems to contradict it. Because we read, Very much of the land remains to be possessed. Uh Uh-oh. Even though the battles have been won and the armies that came out to meet them have been defeated, there's still a big issue, and you're going to see that throughout the rest of the book of Joshua, which is the land remains to be taken. Very much of the land is still in Canaanite possession. There's no armed resistance, but they're still there. And in several pockets, uh, they're actually controlling the area, like the city of Jerusalem at this point in time uh, is actually still controlled by a Canaanite tribe of Jebusites. And we're we're told that two large swaths of land have uh, yet to be even taken, which is along the Mediterranean where the Philistines will be, and then up north, where Lebanon and uh, Syria are. And they never did take that in the whole history of Israel. And they never took all the way up there the land that God had uh, actually given them. And what I wanted to show you before we get into the land in way of introduction, if you'll hold your finger there and turn to Genesis 48. That's the first book in the Bible. Genesis 48 and 49, and the reason is right before Jacob, remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel 
So the, the country is named after Jacob. He's the guy that is really the patriarch. Normally think of Abraham, but Israel uh, is the name of, that Jacob was given by God. And Jacob is the one that had the 12 sons who formed the 12 tribes that we'll see today. Each tribe is going to get an allotment of land. These are actually tribes that were derived from the sons of Jacob. Well, in Genesis, uh, yeah, Genesis 48 and 49, right before Jacob dies, right before he dies, he calls his sons in, and he's going to talk to them about the promised land, which is interesting because at the time, they're all in Egypt. If you remember, there was a great famine in the land, and so... Jacob and all of his sons and all of their entourage, their family and everybody made the journey to live in Egypt. Joseph had been made prime minister of Egypt and so they had clout, they were given their own land. And so at the end of, of Genesis, Israel and the 12 sons and all their families are in Egypt. And before Jacob dies, he calls them in to give them prophecies about the land that they're going to be given in the future. God had promised them, even though it was going to be 400 years from this point in time, they believed it. Hebrews 11 says Jacob believed God, and so he called his sons in and blessed them and told them about the land they were going to be given because he believed God. He had faith in the promises of God. And God had promised to give them the land. And so in chapter 48, he calls Joseph in first. Because even though Joseph was not the oldest son, we'll read that his actual oldest son, Reuben, had committed a heinous sin. It's, it would be nothing in our economy today here in America. He slept with his mother. That wouldn't mean anything to us today. Probably some of the politicians in Washington have done that. Nobody cares, right? But it was a big deal then. And so he was on the outs. And so Jacob calls Joseph in and says, I'm going to replace the oldest son, Reuben, with your sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph, because... I want to give you a double portion of the land. So instead of giving Joseph, making Joseph a tribe and his descendants get one portion, his two sons were each going to have a tribe, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they would each get an apportionment of the land. So Ephraim and Manasseh would be uh, very important tribes in the history of Israel, especially the tribe of Ephraim. And Jacob is going to predict, prophesy all of that in chapter 48 and 49. So in today's lesson in Joshua, we're going to look at how the land was apportioned, but you're going to see it had already been predetermined, obviously by God, 400 years before. See? God had already determined who was going to go where and how it was going to shake out and, which, and what each tribe would look like. And so he brings, chapter 48, verse 1, he brings Joseph in, and he says, here's your two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And he tells Joseph there that 
I'm going to adopt them as my own. They're going to actually become, literally, legally, they're going to become Jacob's sons instead of grandsons. And then, as my sons, they're each going to get an inheritance of the land when our descendants go into the land in 400 years. So, he calls them, verse 9, bring them to me that I may bless them. And uh, he can't really see which is which because his eyes are dim. He's about 100 years old. And uh, the oldest one is actually Manasseh. And so Joseph tries to position him at Jacob's right side, the, the side of prominence, and then put Ephraim at the left side. But when he brings them together, Jacob actually goes like this and crosses his arms. So his right hand is on Ephraim and left on Manasseh. And uh, Joseph says, no, you got it wrong. He says, no, I got it right because my information is from God. And even though Ephraim is the youngest son, he is going to be the, the, the prominent one and the leader of the family. And he's going to be the more numerous tribe and uh, get more and better land. And so, naturally, dad objects, you know, because it's the tradition of man that the oldest son get the bigger portion and that he be the patriarch. But as we've seen in the book of Genesis from the very beginning, God delights, he delights in upsetting the traditions of men. He loves it. <laughs> And so, going all the way back to Abraham, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was born first, but Isaac was the child of promise. And then when Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, Esau was the oldest, but Jacob became the prominent son that was blessed, the child of the promise. And so it went, and again, here we see uh, that even Joseph had replaced the oldest son, Reuben, and now his sons, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim, will be switched that way also. So Ephraim would end up being the most numerous tribe with the, with the most population and a major leader of the tribes. And when, after Solomon's king is, is ended, they have a split in the kingdom, if you may remember historically, and you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and Ephraim literally, the tribe of Ephraim literally takes over the northern kingdom. And in many places in the Bible, it's actually called, instead of Israel, it's actually called Ephraim. So they become kind of the dominant tribe in the north, and Judah will be the dominant tribe in the south. So then in chapter 49... Genesis 49, he calls all the sons in, all 12 sons come in, and we see them, chapter 49, Jacob summons them, and then he says to gather, and then he tells Reuben in verse 3, now, you had potential, and you would have been the preeminent son, but, verse 4, you shall not be. Because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. <laughs> so you're disqualified. <coughs> and then Simeon and Levi, 
the next two oldest brothers, you're disqualified because they went into a town called Shechem. And because Shechem, one of the prince of Shechem had raped their sister, uh, they kind of overcompensated and slaughtered the entire town. Uh, the men, all the men in the town, they killed them. And then they took all their children and wives and made them slaves and just completely destroyed everything. And so he's saying because you murdered, you committed genocide, you also are disqualified, and I'm replacing all of you with Ephraim and Manasseh, which absolutely happened historically. And he, he tells uh, those three brothers, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, that they're not going to get their own land in the land. So when they go into the land, you're not going to get any. <laughs> and we'll see in a minute uh, where, they, where these three tribes ended up, and you'll see that they didn't. They, they didn't get any of the land. Uh, just as Jacob said 400 years earlier. Amazing, right? These prophecies that come true. Uh, and so he says in verse 7, I'm going to disperse you throughout and scatter you throughout Israel. And then verse 8, and, and this, uh, this, these inheritance promises are primarily about the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Ephraim. And so most of the print material here is going to be on Judah and Ephraim. So uh, verse 8, you see the prophecy and the promise of inheritance to Judah. Your brother shall praise you. They, they will look up to you. You will be the leader. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. You'll be very victorious in battle. And all your father's sons shall bow down to you. So you'll be the leader of the family. Judah is a lion's whelp. So they were always called the, the tribe of lions. They, it was their symbol. And, uh, of course, David was called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then again, in the New Testament, Christ was from the tribe of Judah, and so he's called the lion of the tribe of Judah as well. And he says in verse 10, the scepter, now this is what the king of Israel has, uh, the staff of the king shall not depart from Judah. So this will be the kingly line he is predicting, that the kings of Israel, beginning with David, of course, all the kings came from the line or the tribe of Judah. And he's able to say forever, how come? How come he can say forever? Because Christ is the ultimate uh, one of his descendants that will be king, and he will, as we know, be king forever in the kingdom of God. And so he predicts all of this, and, uh, and he has a bunch of cryptic stuff there in verse 11, 12, uh, but basically he's saying you'll, you'll flourish uh, economically and every otherwise uh, as far as numbers and the whole deal. And then he goes through uh, very short, brief, and cryptic prophecies to the other seven tribes, which we won't spend any time on. You can look at that yourself later. But suffice it to say that everything he said about where they would settle and what kind of tribe they would be, all of it came true. Amazing prophecy. And then at the end of the chapter 49, he uh, blesses Ephraim. 
And so a lot of material there. Verse 22 is beginning. Joseph is a fruitful bough. He's the father of, of Ephraim and Manasseh. And you'll be, he says you'll be very fruitful. Many people, big population. And so they became. And you'll be mighty and God will bless you. In verse 25 and 26 over and over and over. So, again, the, the main two tribe, tribes are going to be Judah and Ephraim. They're going to get the best land of their choice before the other tribes even choose. And they'll be the most populous and most important tribes in Israel, uh, Judah and Ephraim. All of that came true. It's amazing. And I'll remind you, I'm sure you're probably uh, aware of this, but Jacob was a prophet like so many of the Bible authors. And um, this, is, this is a test to see if you can pass this. How many of the prophecies that the prophets made have come true? What's their percentage? 100%. Jeff is on the ball as always. Always got the right answers. I call him before. <laughs> I brief him. I brief him. <laughs> All right, so when the Bible makes these prophecies, amazingly how they come true in time, and what we always say is that leaves us pretty good chance that the, that the prophecies about our future are going to come true as well, wouldn't you say? I think so. So now go back to uh, Joshua with me, and uh, in Joshua 13, we have a repetition, as I said, of very much of the land remains to be possessed. And so there's a problem. There's going to be uh, an issue throughout this allotment process. Because how Joshua, they've been fighting for seven years. And there's no more armies to oppose them. And so Joshua says the wise thing to do and the best way to do that because these Canaanites are all through the land. And the way to handle this is we're going to do the allotments of land. Each tribe's going to get certain areas. And you are responsible, that tribe is responsible for the Canaanites that are in that part of the land. You're responsible for driving them out, wiping them out, and taking all the land that you're given. That's your job. But what happens is, we're going to read constantly as they gave them the land, and it says they get, went into the land, and, but it says, but the Canaanites were there. And very much of the land remained to be, you know, you'll see that over and over and over. So it's obviously a huge problem. And uh, Joshua, Moses before him, warned against leaving any Canaanites there because they said, I promise you, these people, if you leave them there, they will corrupt you. They will corrupt you. It's just a matter of time. My, maybe not the first generation, but certainly the second and third. Your children and grandchildren will be corrupted because their religion is very appealing to the lust of man. Uh, it, it was uh, those religions, those Canaanite religions, majored in sex and alcohol and everything that appeals to what you might say, the flesh, right? And so um, that's exactly what ended up happening. They didn't get rid of the Canaanites, and that third generation, the grandchildren of, of these people, ended up being 
corrupted and falling into idolatry. So it's a very important issue that uh, they did not drive the Canaanites out. So as you go through uh, chapter uh, 13, verse 8, uh, and all the way through the end is a recap of the Transjordan tribes. The Transjordan tribes, can we skip to the map? We'll come back. Thank you. There you go. Okay. Uh, <laughs> thanks. That, thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, so the Transjordan tribes are the tribes who are on the east side of the Jordan River. So the land given was from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean, and three of the tribes, half of the tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Gad and Reuben, did not get land on the west side of the Jordan River in Israel. They elected to stay on the east side, so they were called the Transjordan, Transjordan River, other side of Jordan River tribes. And uh, he goes through the deal that they asked for that, and so they're going to get it. He warns them against it, you know, because when foreign invaders come in, who do you think they're going to hit first? Those guys, see? Because the lakes and the river are a natural barrier to the nation of Israel, but they're going to be exposed out there, and sure enough, historically, they were. They were invaded over and over and over and finally wiped out. Um, so uh, chapter 13 is devoted to the agreement with them. And uh, their land is given them. And then chapter 14, um, we have the division of the actual land of Canaan that is on the west side of the Jordan River in chapter 14. Uh, back again, but Moses did a census back in Numbers 26, uh, taking a population study of all the different tribes in order to decide which tribe was the most populous and would need the most land. So that when they went into the land, uh, they would go and survey into tracts and then the more populous tribes would get the bigger and more fruitful tracts. Um, and so that's what chapter 14 is about, that they're going to now divide it. After they've done the survey, they're going to divide it up by lot. And a lot is like, it's not dice, but it's like that in the sense that they had little um, square stones, and they would have names on it, and they would shake it up, and somebody would either draw or they'd pitch out one of the stones, and it would have a name on it. So... <coughs> You can see that, that, that was, I think those are actual renditions of, of what the lot was. And uh, as they pulled those out, they'd say, okay, this tribe gets this and this tribe gets that. Uh, and so those are the instructions that he's giving them in chapter 14. Each tribe is going to get land proportionate to its population. Now, even though it was going to be supposedly random, chosen by lot, it is assumed, not only by the author, but by Joshua and by us, 
that this is all going to be superintended by God. He's already determined. We saw back in Genesis 49, he's already determined where they're going to be and what's going to happen. So even though it appears to be random so that each tribe thinks, you know, okay, we got a fair shake because this, this was random. Everybody got to draw. It's actually, in this case, already been foreseen, foreknown, and planned by God where each tribe would end up. Uh, so they go through these actions, and we know, though, that what's really happening is God, this is how God's going to accomplish what he's already determined. And then in verse 6, chapter 14, 6, Caleb, if you remember, Caleb was a leader, and uh, he was of the tribe of Judah, and he was the guy when they were back there at Kadesh Barnea originally, way back when they first came out of Egypt, that first generation, remember Caleb and Joshua were the only ones of those 12 spies that wanted to go into the land and take it. They were the only ones that had the faith. The other 10 said, we can't do it. And so that whole generation had to, be, had to die out before the next generation could come in. Except for Joshua and Caleb. And God promised, because of their faith, God promised to give each of them their own special allocation within their tribal allotment. So here we see uh, Caleb gets his allotment right off the bat in verse 6. And he goes down, and uh, it, we see in verse 7, he says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea. So he goes through the history of it, and he says in verse 12, so, okay, that's the deal God made. So give me this hill country where the Anakim were. And we saw last week, and this is a repeat of it, that Caleb went down there. They gave him that part of the land where the Anakim were, the giant guys, and he went down there with his family, and, and they took it, and they killed all the Anakim and took the land that was going to be theirs. And then in chapter 15, we have Judah's allotment. Now, this is the way I think it, it, it's not real clear how all this worked. But apparently because Judah and Ephraim were the biggest and most important tribes, that they got first choice. So the, before the other seven tribes get to choose, Judah and Ephraim say, okay, this is the, this is the part of land we want. And uh, Judah got the whole southern part. And Ephraim got the central part, the central highlands there, all the way over to the coast and all the way over to the river. And so they basically uh, laid out the land that they wanted before the other people got to choose. And uh, so chapter uh, 15 here is Judah's allotment, and you have it there. It gives you the borders, their south border goes all the way from the bottom of the Dead Sea all the way across, kind of diagonally, down there to Egypt. They get all the southern land. Um, and then they go all the way to the Jordan River and the Dead Sea on the, on the, uh, the uh, east side of their land and all the way to the Mediterranean on the west side. And that's laid out there. The boundaries are laid out here. 
and we see that uh, Caleb gets his, he's from the tribe of Judah, and he gets his land within that, that, that uh, assault, allotment of, of Judah there in the hill country. And if, if you remember when we were reading the part about uh, Judah, those last two verses had a couple of things to say. One, that they would have plush vineyards. And the land that Judah got is perfect for vineyards, and that's exactly what happened. They grew, they were uh, known for their vineyards. It's kind of a, a hilly country, and the vineyards really uh, were abundant there. And also, um, they were, it said they would be surrounded by enemies, but they would be victorious. And if you look at uh, Judah, you can't see it here, but they had uh, Moab on the uh, southeast, and they had Edom down here on the far south, and Egypt and the Philistines over there on the west. And so they were surrounded, just like uh, Jacob would say, but they end up defeating all those nations. Then uh, in Joshua 16, you have the other major tribe, Ephraim, gets its allotment. Uh, and Manasseh is, is with them. That's his brother. That's their, both of them are Joseph's sons, if you remember. So Ephraim and Manasseh get their allotment uh, back to back there. Uh, and Ephraim gets first choice. And uh, after they get their allotment and they go to settle there, they come back. This is classic. God gave them this land. God went before them and defeated the Canaanites. God brought them out. I said, well, Ephraim goes back and, and complains and says, it's not enough. Don't you know who we are? We're the most important tribe. We deserve more than this. And, of course, what does Joshua say? If, if you read the text, Joshua says, uh, why? We don't have enough land. And he says, look. If you don't have enough land, it's because you need to clear more land. And there's some Canaanites living in there, and you need to get those guys out of there and take their land. Then you'll have more, way more than enough land. And they go, well, that would be hard. <laughs> That's hard work, you know. So they don't do that. They just complain about it. Um, and then in chapter uh, Joshua 18, uh, now that the main tribes have got their land, now they, this had all happened in Gilgal. Remember, that's that camp down there by Jericho right there on the Jordan River, uh, Gilgal. Uh, but now they move up to Shiloh, which is where the uh, tabernacle is going to stay for a while. And they're going to have the drawing, the allotments for the other tribes the other seven tribes that haven't been dealt with yet. And so, uh, chapter 18, we find them at Shiloh, and first thing they've got to do is go out and do a survey. Okay, you, you, you guys are lazy. <laughs> you were supposed to have already gone out and done this survey and had the, lot, the land divided up, but you haven't. When are you going to do it? So he sends them out, and they do it, and they come back, and... That takes quite a bit of time. And then they have the drawing, and he goes through all seven of those tribes, and you can see where they all end up, all the different tribes, uh, very much like what 
Jacob had said back in Genesis. Uh, they all end up pretty much where he said and of the same nature of people as he said. Um, Dan, but some, some of the things that changed, you see Dan was actually given, his allotment that he drew was on the coast over here next to Ephraim. <coughs> but the, Phili the Philistines are too tough for him. And they're too lazy to get rid of them. And so Dan says, let's go somewhere where we can steal land and the people are weak. Sure enough, they go scouting around. And you see way up there by Mount Hermon. And you can find this story at the end of the book of Judges, okay? The a scouting team from Dan goes up there and comes back and says, there's a bunch of weenies up there at Laish. We could take all their stuff. And so sure enough, the tribe of Dan moves up there. And they end up uh, historically up there uh, just south of Mount Hermon. And if you go up there, you can, you'll... Uh, if you go to Israel now, if you go on a tour, you'll typically go up there by Mount Hermon. And it's a really green area with a bunch of waterfalls and all the water's coming down off Mount Hermon. Uh, it's, it's really cool. They have the uh, big waterfalls there that you can go up and look at. And that was where the tribe of Dan is. Unfortunately, the tribe of Dan became some of the worst idol worshipers ever in the history of Israel. And... They're actually even omitted from the, the tribe's names of Israel in the New Testament. They, they were so bad. Um, but all the other tribes, Benjamin, I think it's interesting. Again, it's supposed to be a random allotment. But Benjamin, uh, Jacob had said back in uh, Genesis, Benjamin, you'll be a small tribe, but you'll be warlike. You'll be the toughest of the tribes, even though you're the smallest. And sure enough, historically, they were the Spartans of Israel. They were raised to be warriors. They were, they were tough. And uh, whenever they went out, Israel went out to do battle, they put the Benjamins out in front because everybody was afraid of them. Now, amazingly enough, when you've got two major tribes like Ephraim and Judah, there might be some rivalries. There might be some border disputes. So how wise is it to give the toughest tribe of Benjamin a sliver of land between them? You see that? So, I mean, nobody's going to argue with the Benjamins. Nobody's going to go in there and say, hey, we've got, we got a border dispute here. <laughs> Never mind. And so God wisely put Benjamin between the two main tribes that would end up being big-time rivals. And you can see that Jerusalem there is uh, right on the border of Judah and Benjamin. And in time, uh, Benjamin would just become a part of the tribe of Judah. And that line on the south would just be basically erased, and that would all be Judah's. Uh, the tribe of Simeon, if you remember what uh, Jacob had said to Simeon, you're disqualified because of the massacre at Shechem. They originally moved down and lived in the southern part down near the desert in the, in the allotment of Judah. And they were dispersed there, so they didn't get their own land. Uh, and, of course, Gad, one of the other tribes, 
there on the Transjordan, and Reuben, his oldest son, didn't get any land either. He's on the east side of Jordan, all like the prophecies of Jacob said. Everything worked out just like he said. All right? Uh, and so all the other tribes, Simeon, Zebulun, Isaacar, Asher, Naphtali, Dan, Benjamin, they're all gone through here in chapter 19. They all are told where to live. Levi is the priestly tribe. They're not given any land. They're dispersed into cities throughout the land. All right? Um, so, again, just like Jacob had said. So in chapter uh, uh, 19, uh, the land is all given. And he cre- chapter 20, he creates cities of refuge, uh, places where you could go until you had a trial, somebody was after you. Uh, then 21, you have the cities of the Levites are given. Uh, then Jacob brings... Uh, has three different farewell addresses in chapter 22 because he's getting ready to die. Uh, He goes on the Transjordan tribes in chapter 22. He brings all the main rulers together in chapter 23. And then chapter 24, I'd like to spend a little time on as we close here in chapter 24, Joshua now brings all the people together. And he's like up on a hillside and they're down in a valley and he's speaking to just, you know, a huge number of Israelites telling them goodbye. And what he does is he does a review uh, of, of the history of Israel, what they've all been through in verse 1 through 15. Like verse 13, he, he reiterates, God drove out all that Canaanites. He gave you the land, won all the battles for you, gave you everything. Verse 13, I gave you land. He's speaking for God. I gave you the land. Therefore, now, he, Joshua, is going to speak to him and go, because God has done all this. He just reviewed the history, all that God had done. Because this is true, y'all need to make a decision. It's the same one that we need to make and everybody in the world has, at one time or another has got to make. Are you going to be involved in the world religions, the pagan idolatry of the Canaanites, or are you going to worship the one true God? Decide now. Make a commitment and live by it. That's what he's saying here in his farewell address. And so he says, verse 14, now, because God has done so much and given you so much, Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods of which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord only. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself. Make a choice. Don't sit on the fence and let, like you're, you're, you're one when you're really the other. Today, right now, make a commitment. Choose for yourself today whom you will serve whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, the idols, or the gods of the Amorites, the Canaanite gods, in whose land you are living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Awesome. It's a challenge. It's a command. 
You, you make the decision. Are you going to serve all the worldly gods of all these other people? Or are you going to commit yourself to the one true God who's given you everything? As for me and my house, we choose the Lord and we will serve him. Totally committed. And that's the idea that Joshua is trying to transfer to them. Everything's at stake. Uh, and as, as you, I said, the third generation, their great-grandchildren all went the other direction. you got to wonder why. Uh, <laughs> and I think it's because the appeal of idolatry and the fact that they forgot. They keep saying, remember, remember, remember. Uh, I think he emphasized that because human race is so bad about forgetting. They get distracted. All the stuff in the world, the problems and all the stuff in the world distracts people, especially the younger people that didn't actually experience everything that Joshua and his people experienced. And they did exactly what Joshua and Moses had predicted and feared would happen. So what about us today? Where do we stand uh, when it comes to the land that we've been looking at, this land right here, what does that mean to us today as the church, right? So Jesus came into the world, and he brought in what we call the new covenant. The old covenant of Moses said, keep the law, the Ten Commandments, and all the other laws, and you will live in this land peacefully, and God will bless you. That was the Mosaic covenant of law. But Jesus came bringing the covenant of grace. And in the covenant of grace, Jesus said, you cannot be saved by keeping the law. Your sins cannot be forgiven in that manner. They must be atoned for. And of course, we know that Christ's substitutionary death on the cross atoned for our sins, all those who believe and have received Jesus as their Savior. And so in doing so, Jesus also said, this is for the whole world. And he gave them the Great Commission. Take this good news to the whole world. So beginning uh, with Jesus and beginning in the new covenant that he ushered in, suddenly there's no boundaries. It's an international thing. And the church is created. And the New Testament authors say, the body of Christ, all those who believe in Christ, are members of the church, no matter where they are or what race or language they speak. So as the church, we in the church, uh, we are not really uh, bound by the, the land as, say, uh, Jewish people believe they are. And, I, and having been to Israel many times and talked to many Jewish people, I would hazard to say that in the heart of all Jews, the land is very important. Even if they don't live there, they're very interested in it. And it, it, that nationalistic state of being is in their heart. You've heard of the term Zionism, and usually the press uses it very negatively. But Mount Zion is the, is the mount there in Jerusalem that David built his house on Mount Zion. Uh, so it's the old part of the old city of David. And so 
typically, you know, the whole city's called Zion quite, quite often. Uh, so Zionism is a love for, a uh, feeling towards, a nationalistic view of the city of Jerusalem and, of course, Israel. And I think all Jews everywhere have a special place in their heart for this land. Because as we saw uh, in our study of Joshua, God gave them this land and said, forever, it's yours. Right? The, the song from the movie Exodus, this land is mine, God gave this land to me. I mean, they all feel that way, believe in that, uh, and rightfully so, because God did. And it uh, goes all the way back to chapter 12 in Genesis, God promised it, and then again in Genesis 15, then again in Genesis 17, then again to uh, Abraham's son Isaac and his son Jacob, and now to Moses and Joshua and the people over and over and over. This land is yours. God gave it to you, right? Uh, but as the church ourselves, we are not bound by that law or have that nationalistic view because we have an international view, you might say. And the writers of the New Testament make it clear that uh, we are a new entity. The church is new. And it's made up with Jews, Gentiles, and people of every ethnic, you know, ethnic race or uh, language all over the world, whoever believes in Christ, is in the church. They make up the body of Christ. And Peter says then, that now you, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of God who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, for you were not a people before, but now you are the people of God. So we believe, and in, in the New Testament is telling us, that now the church is the called the people of God, the people of God uh, that God is using to reveal himself to the world. He started out with Israel, but of course they rejected Jesus, and then God turned to the whole world in that sense. As a mediator for himself is the church, and that's our view that we now represent God as Israel supposedly represented him before. To reveal him to the world is our job and what we are all about. So what about the land? Uh, we still, biblically, the church, us, and the New Testament, we still biblically have a high regard for the land because the prophets all say in the end times uh, it will be the focus will be on Israel. And even now, think how amazing it is uh, especially becomes true if you go over there. If, if we had a, like a, a big map of the world, you'd see these giant countries like the United States and Russia and China, and Israel is just a little sliver, just a little sliver. It looks big here, but it's only 60 or 70 miles wide and about 180 miles long. I mean, almost every state in America is bigger than that. And it's this tiny place, and you go over there, people are amazed because it's 
it's so arid and it's hilly and it's rocky. And like everywhere we went, this, this one lady, you know, after a while said, more rocks? <laughs> they have anything else here? You know. And so you expect to go over there and see this incredible place, you know, and you wonder, what's the deal? Why is the attention, the headlines of the newspaper and the stories constantly on this little place? See? <coughs> so our focus is on all the prophecies in the Old Testament that say, in the end times, when Messiah comes back, he will return to, where, guess where? Jerusalem. Mount of Olives, specifically there in Jerusalem, and set up the kingdom. So it'll, we see it kind of as the future capital of the kingdom of God. And so it is very near and dear to our heart and very important to the church as well, just in a different way. All right? And... Uh, Romans 11, Paul even writes in Romans 11 saying, you know, don't discount, don't be too proud, uh, don't discount the value, the importance of the Jews. He says, because in the end times, even though they've rejected Christ now, in the end times when he comes back, they will recognize him and receive him at that time. And so, uh, to me, it's a, a very important place and uh, Jews are very important people because I always remember uh, Genesis chapter 12 when God told Abraham, I will bless you and everyone that blesses you, I will bless them. And everyone that curses you, I will curse them. So this is an awesome place historically and especially in the future in all of our perspective, okay? So, we, be, we believe in Jesus, and we believe that Jesus is coming back, and we are going to be resurrected at that time, and it's going to be right there in Jerusalem, and we will be raised at that time as well unto eternal life and the kingdom of God. if we believe in Jesus as our Savior. So come now. Well, the time is there for you to come. Don't wait any longer. Don't sit on the fence any longer. Do exactly as Joshua said. No longer do you just wander around aimlessly. No longer do you wonder about things. No longer do you sit on the fence and try to have it both ways. Joshua says, today, commit. Let's go, people. And that's the message of Joshua. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you for blessing us, just as you just laid out there, how much you blessed Joshua and all his people. Lord, you have blessed us greatly in the church today with the truth and so many other blessings, and we pray, Lord, that we would make that decision to be committed to you and follow you wholeheartedly and obey you in every way. Uh, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.